Brothers and sisters, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there is a blue Bible, likely, underneath the seat around you in that Bible. You could turn to page 986. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. We'll see how today goes. I debated quite a bit about how to approach this text, what to talk about, how to handle it, how detailed to get. So let's see what happens. Here we go. We're going to go ahead and read the text first, and I'll just give you a heads up right now. I'm not going to dive in to every potential detail that the text has for us this morning. I'm approaching it a little bit differently. So, But let's go ahead and read the verses, and then we'll uh, begin to look at it. Beginning in verse 13, the Apostle Paul wrote this to the young church in Thessalonica. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers or brothers and sisters in Christ, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right, that's our text. A lot of verses there. This is, if you don't know, a, a classic, or probably the classic. There's three primary passages that we look at when discussing or talking about what is commonly referred to as the rapture. The rapture. This is the classic passage, probably on the rapture. The other two passages that you could write down for your notes to look at and study later are John 14, Gospel of John, John 14, 1 through 3. Also, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58. I am going to ask you to just turn to the left in your Bibles to John and just read that real quick for reference. John 14, you can just keep your hand there in Thessalonians. This will be good. We'll, it'll come back up later during the sermon. John 14. Jesus is, you know, approaching his death. He is in the course of his ministry in this time period, and he wants to comfort his disciples. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you, who's he talking to? Disciples, believers in him. I will take you 
to myself that where I am, you may be also. Okay, promise of our Lord, promise that he would return, promise that he would come for them, for believers, and bring them with him, that he may be, they may be with him where he is, in a place where he has provided a dwelling for them, that they may be with him and the Father and, and rejoice and have all the blessings of that. Okay, so just keep that in mind for right now. The, um, the rapture, the way we understand the rapture here at Summit Bible Church, is it is pre-tribulational, meaning that it occurs prior to the tribulation, uh, seven-year tribulation that will come upon the earth. I did a message on the pre-tribulational rapture when I was in the Gospel of Mark because we were talking about uh, uh, the abomination of desolation. We were talking about some end-time events, and I thought it would be good to break from the Gospel for a second and discuss why one should believe in a pre-tribulational rapture and even explaining what that is. I did that if you want to look that up at some other time. Um, you can find it. It's a sermon in our archives. The date of it is, again, February 5th, 2012. As a reminder, though, uh, the word rapture comes from a similar Latin word that was used in the Latin translation of the Bible or the Latin Vulgate that was the primary text for believers for a very long period of time. And that Latin word... Uh, was the word, you know, again, is similar to rapture, reptuo, to translate the Greek verb that we find right here in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 that I just read to you that is translated caught up, caught up in 4.17. So sometimes people will say the word rapture is nowhere in the Bible. Those who don't believe in the rapture or don't understand it, they'll just say, I don't see rapture anywhere in the Bible. Yeah, in your English Bible, you don't. That's right. You don't see that. But we refer to it as rapture because that's how it was referred to for some time in Latin. But it's simply this Greek word being translated caught up here in verse 17 of First Thess 4. With me so far? Okay. Uh, and the other thing I would say is that there's, when you hear the rapture, often you hear it in a way that's not accurate or is associated with misinformation. And that's a concern for me, always has been, because I think then people begin to discount the rapture when it keeps being associated with things that aren't true or they think it's just hogwash or nonsense made up by you know, this weird religious group. Or maybe even Christians may begin to think, ah, oh, the rapture, that's a bunch of nonsense because it's always associated, it seems to always be associated with nonsense. So for instance, uh, a, a news channel, a big news channel just recently reported, and this happens all the time, it's very frequent, I don't know if you know this, but the world was supposed to end on April 23rd, which was last Monday. And this guy named David Mead is supposedly a Christian, okay, and a numerologist, which means he studies numbers, and he's going to somehow calculate uh, when the end of the world will come. But specifically, he said on April 23rd, because certain planets were lining up, blah, 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 uh, Christians were going to be raptured at that time, and then non-believers would be left on the earth to, be, to die, basically, over a period of about five months. I don't know where he gets all that from, either. None of that is from the Bible. 
But like I said, because, and he's not alone, there are folks like that who name themselves as Christians, and maybe some of, I don't know, you know, without trying to guess whether they really are or not, but maybe they're just misinformed, I don't know, but I think a lot of them are not. And they continue to put out these dates, which they should not be doing if they read their Bibles, and talking about these raptures and, that, you know, and giving this time period and freaking people out or causing all kinds of chaos. But if you can just, what you need to do is set that aside and call it what it is, nonsense. But the rapture is not nonsense. You with me? The rapture is not nonsense. The rapture is biblical. So, Paul's intent, though, in writing this section was to clear up a matter that had given the new believers in Thessalonica a measure of concern and grief. And the matter, as we will see, is related to the rapture, the rapture. So Paul's instruction here is meant to bring clarification, comfort, and encouragement to this very young church. This is a very young church. So we're going to look at all that. We're going to talk a little bit. We're going to have to. We're going to talk about the rapture. And we're going to see exactly what Paul's communicating here and, and hopefully be able to draw something away at the end if we have enough time. So let's take a closer look at what Paul had to say in, in, in this passage. So beginning first in verse 13. We'll spend a little bit of time here not as much time in the rest of it, and you'll, I hopefully it'll make sense why. He says, uh, but, but is, and it begins with but, it's, it's, a, it's a conjunction, it's transitional, it indicates there's a new subject being introduced. So some, another translation translates it now, other translations just leave it out altogether. But he's transitioning to a new topic at this point, still giving instruction, writing to the Thessalonians, the Christians in Thessalonica, that is, uh, based on this report that he received back from Timothy about the church and how they were doing, and certainly concerns they may have had or expressed to Timothy, Paul is now addressing, and here is one. Okay? But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no Hope, all right? So a few things to consider. Asleep, asleep, verse 13, you see it? Paul uses this word again in a different tense. So here it's in the present tense, they are asleep. Uh, he uses it in the aorist tense two more times in verse 15 and uh, 14 and 15, have fallen asleep. But how should we understand this word? Now, you may already know the answer to that because we've talked about how this word is used in other places in the scriptures. But even if you didn't know, even if you didn't know, if you kept reading, you could probably figure it out how Paul is using this word asleep. So let's do that. See, in context is key, and I'm going to tell you something else. If I were to take verse 13 out of this passage and use it by itself, I would miss the rest of the context, and I think miss then what Paul is actually communicating in verse 13 or talking about. And, and often that is how I've heard. 13's been used. I've, 
we've, you know, I've heard it used when people are at funerals of a loved one, especially a Christian, and they use this passage. But I want to show you, it's, it's fascinating. You need to read it in its context to, uh, to get what it's really, I think, saying. So let's just look, though, first, asleep. What is Paul talking about? Okay, 14, he says, which is connected to 13. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. If you still don't know, let's look at 15. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What do you think it might mean? Yeah, dead. They're dead. Sleep refers to the dead. And here, more specifically, it, it refers to Christians. Make that note. It refers to Christians who have died in this context. Not just the dead, to Christians who have died. Which is why we, or why I, we, that's funny, why I titled the text, The Dead in Christ. So we'll come, we'll come back to that. Additionally, one scholar points out that this well-known euphemism for death, asleep, it didn't originate with Christianity. Uh, Christianity didn't come up with that word or use it to describe something as difficult as death. Uh, it was a common metaphor among the Jews and was even current among, currently being used among pagans. This figure was apparently suggested by the stillness of the body and its apparent restfulness upon death. It was used even when there was no hope of resurrection. So, asleep. Pagans would use it as well. You look at the body, and it's a way of making reference to a dead body. You with me so far? Okay. Interesting enough, uh, I, I found it interesting, the early Christians took a, a, a form of this word used to sleep, or this word, and put it with something else. Um, I don't know exactly how to say it in the Greek, komateria, it's where we get our word cemetery. So Christians refer to their burial places as cemeteria, which means sleeping chambers. So I found that interesting. Some of you did too, the others don't care, but that's okay. It's all right. I just thought, yeah, cemetery, sleeping chambers. So asleep. Now, verse 13, still looking at this passage, specifically this verse 13. Paul goes on to say, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Uninformed about what? You can talk to me. What's it say in the text? What's it say in the text? We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about what? Okay, that's good. It says literally about those who are asleep. Oh, happy anniversary, by the way. Uh, it says literally about those who are asleep. I didn't see you. I wanted to see you earlier. About those who are asleep, we've already said. So people are listening. Fantastic. Awesome. Uh, about the dead in Christ, really. Yes, because it's specifically about those who have died believing in Christ. I don't want you to be uninformed about them. Uninformed. A definition of uninformed would be not having awareness or understanding of the facts. Okay? So there was something that the young Christians in Thessalonica, remember this is a new church, really new. 
like just months old. They didn't, they didn't necessarily know all that they could know about the Christian faith as of yet. Paul certainly did his best while he was there with Silas, Silvanus, to instruct them in the faith. But it's still a young church. They're still growing and learning. And, and so there's something here that these young Christians hadn't yet understood entirely or maybe misunderstood concerning or related to those who had fallen asleep or the dead in Christ. You with me so far? Okay. So a little more context, looking at the letter. What were they instructed in? Well, one writer says, when Paul penned this epistle, as I said, the Thessalonians had been in Christ, you know, maybe for three, four, five months max. We know, based on the letter, though, if we look at the letter in its entirety, that the apostle had taught them about end-time events, such as Christ's return to gather believers to himself. How do we know that? At the end of each chapter, and remember, the chapter breaks were added later, but at the end of each chapter of this letter, you'll see a reference to the coming again of Christ. I mean, the letter is just filled with it. it. It overlays it. That's why some people have said this is living in light of the return of Christ. You could, you could title the whole letter that, living in light of the return of Christ, the return for his people. And we see that, I'll show you what I'm talking about. So at the end of chapter 1, we've already covered all, this, all these passages, but at the end of chapter 1, Paul writes, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from, from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for what? His Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So what are they doing? They've turned from their aisles, they're serving God, they're making him known, and what are they doing? At the same time, they are waiting, waiting, anticipating, expecting what? The return of the Son. They're waiting for the Son to come back. You remember the passage I read you in John earlier? What did he promise those who believe? That he would come again. And he would receive them unto himself that they may be where he is and that he will prepare a place for them to dwell with him and God forever. Okay? In 1 Thess 2.19, at the end of that chapter, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting, Paul says, before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Again, a reference to his coming. Is it not you? Again, at the end of 1 Thessalonians, or at the end of chapter 3, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, you may not remember this, I doubt you do, but when we were in that section, I read you this quote concerning coming before God, Jesus coming before God. Here's the picture. Coming before the Father, God the Father, with all of his saints, presenting them blameless in holiness. Okay? And I read you this. It is best to equate this coming of the Lord Jesus with the rapture of the church, which 
is what we're looking at now in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and her arrival in the place prepared for her, which would be a reference back to John 14 that I read to you earlier. After this comes the reward at the judgment seat of Christ when they come and, our, and Christ brings them with him, the church, to present before the Father. They'll be rewarded for their faithfulness and obedience. And we see in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 14, this event, this reward process is described. So listen, end time events were obviously part of their instruction because Paul doesn't do a lot of explaining at the end of all of these sections. He just makes reference to the coming of their Lord. And so you can assume that they get it. They understand it. They're anticipating it because Paul has given them instruction in these matters on purpose because it makes an impact on their lives as they're looking and longing for and hoping for the return of the one who promised that he would come back for them and receive them to himself and reward them for their hard work for him, okay? So, with me so far? So, we know that Paul instructed them in these matters, but one writer adds, in light of this passage that we're looking at in chapter 4, that there were apparently issues about the details of their gathering to Christ that troubled them. Of gravest concern to the Thessalonians were those of their number who had died. Those of their number, those who were believing, part of the church community, who had died. That's the concern. Okay, In light of the Lord's return. You'll see here, and just hold on to that thought, we'll see it as we keep everything in its context. But one more thing about verse 13. So again, look back at the text. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, believing in Christ, among them. Why? That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Okay? Another translation puts it this way, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. 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 We've talked about that word before in the scriptures. Hope in the scriptures is a looking forward to and confident expectation. A looking forward to and confident expectation. One who has doubts concerning what will happen in the future does not have hope. Not biblical hope. You got me? One who has doubts about what will happen in the future concerning them, being in Christ, all of this, lacks hope. Okay? Or just what will happen in the future, period, or in the afterlife. They do not have biblical hope. One writer says, The hopeless condition of those connected with other religions is capable of abundant illustration. Apart from the, and by the way, just ask yourself this question, what gives us this hope? What gives us this hope? What gives us this confident expectation? Jesus does, yes, but more specifically, yes, for sure, but how do you know about that? Huh? Yeah, the word of God. 
yeah, the unbreakable, reliable, trustworthy word of God, divine revelation, straight from God. So the writer goes on to say, apart from the old, and that is what all other pagan religions, non-Christian religions, or religions outside of Christianity, I should say, lack. They lack divine revelation. They have received word, maybe, not from God, or maybe from their own imagination, or maybe from tradition or myth, things handed down over the ages, but what they do not have is the trustworthy, divine revelation of God. And not having that then, they will always have to, to some degree, wonder and doubt about what follows this life. One writer says, apart from the Old and New Testaments, the future is filled with obscurity and doubt. Another writer adds, even pagans who believed in life after death, and they certainly did, they had a belief, they may have had some type of belief concerning what happens in the afterlife. They did not have that hope confirmed by the Holy Spirit. They merely clung to it without affirmation from God. So not only does God give us believers his word, but then he gives us his spirit that gives us conviction concerning that very word, that it is indeed true, right, perfect, the word of God, trustworthy. We can count on it. We can bet on it with all of our might. We can place our hope in it. We can have confident expectation concerning what will happen in the future and in all eternity. The people of God can. Okay? Another writer says, non-Christians are deprived of the hope and comfort that the Christian faith, rightly understood, provides. Provides. This is why I'm so thankful, always thankful for this blessed word of God that we have, divine revelation, brothers and sisters, that gives us the peace and comfort when rightly understood and strength, causing us to persevere, to press on, to live for him, and rightly understood, right here, all of it. And then he gives us his spirit that enables us to believe it and obey it. One writer says, it may well be remarked that the speculations and surmises of pagan philosophy and religion did not offer any certain basis for hope since they lacked any revelation on the subject. Among the common masses of the pagan world, hopelessness and despair prevailed in the face of death. They had their stories, right? They had their myths, they had their their stories that were passed on from one generation to another, but they did not have the word of God. They did not have revelation from him. And, so they, and they did not have the spirit of God, and so they doubted. And they had hopelessness and despair concerning these issues. So Paul says, now in light of all that, Paul says, listen, I don't want you to be uninformed. Keep following along. I don't want you to be uninformed concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, who have no hope, who do not have this confident expectation, Christians, because they have the Word of God and the Spirit of God and are rightly understanding it, of course. Now, 
Some people will read this so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. They read it, and they read it this way, to the same extent as the rest, or to the unbeliever, or to the pagan. In other words, yeah, you grieve, but you don't grieve as much over someone who dies. But again, now we're already out of the, because this is not someone who dies, this is specifically, you know, the dead in Christ, right? But you don't, you don't grieve, you shouldn't, I want to make sure you're not uninformed so that you don't grieve to the degree that they grieve who don't know Christ or don't have the word of God. That is, I would say that is not the way to understand this passage. It is better to understand the phrase, as, as, and this is how one writer puts it, as not introducing any comparison between sorrow of the Christians and that of the rest as if a certain amount of sorrow was permissible for the Christian. So that, that is not what Paul, I don't believe, if you look at the Greek, that is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying, listen, just don't go over the top in your grief like they do. That's how it's been explained, maybe to you, or it's been used in the past, That is not the way I think it should be understood. Rather, the writer says, the antithesis implies that Christians were not to mourn at all. Not to mourn at all. Now, hold on. Hold on. He goes on to say, Paul's words mean that hopeless pagan sorrow is not to be indulged by the Christian at all. At all. That's what Paul is getting at. One writer adds this, because you're thinking, wait a minute, are you saying we can't have any kind of sorrow? No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying you must not have, I want you to be, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, so that you will not have any hopeless, pagan sorrow over those among you believing who have died. One writer says, non-Christian sorrow out of pity for the departed who have ventured into an unknown realm. Okay, hold on. For Christians, however, there should be no sorrow on behalf of believers who are dead. Grief on behalf of the living and the loss sustained when a loved one dies is legitimate for Christians. That's not what Paul's talking about. But that kind of grief, the writer says, is not in view here. So he's not talking about uh, the, the grief that I experience for myself at the loss of this other Christian who has passed on, who is now asleep. That's not being addressed in the passage. Rather, it is a sorrow or a grief for the individual who has passed on because I don't know the facts concerning what they will face or encounter or I'm confused about it and so I have doubts and concerns and I grieve for them because I think I don't know the truth of what the scriptures teach or what Jesus has said. Another writer writes this, Paul here is prohibiting all sorrow all sorrow that mourns the supposed 
or assume loss sustained by fellow believers because of their death. Such sorrow is not for Christians. Such sorrow is not for Christians. Again, remember, this is a young church, so what I'm going to tell you now, you've heard, you know probably already, but this church at that time was uninformed. They either didn't get specific instruction concerning this particular matter, or they misunderstood what they were told. And because of that, there was a sorrow that they should not have had because they did not have the hope that they should have had concerning those who had died in Christ, and more specifically concerning the return of the Lord in regard to those who have died in Christ. So we're going to see. It's all connected. It's not just dead in Christ. It's, there's a concern about what will happen to them when the Lord returns. When the Lord returns. Man, I hope you can follow all that. Just ask your first or sixth grader. I'm sure they got it all figured out. Okay? So again, to restate, rightly understood, one scholar puts it this way, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 excludes Christian sorrow completely, but it is only sorrow of the type determined by the context. That is sorrow on behalf of the dead in Christ. Sorrow on their behalf. Not, sor- not your own personal sorrow for the personal loss you experienced, but assuming that there was some loss to them, some detriment to them in some way because they have now died. I don't know where Tony is. There he is. Tony said, we were talking about his death the other day, Tony Coronado. I'm kidding. I mean, we were, but we talk about that stuff. But he said, Tony, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Don't be sad for me when I get out of this place, when I leave, right? Something along those lines, right, Tony? You should be celebrating. There'll be grief. His wife will grieve. I would grieve if he leaves before me. I will grieve for myself. But there's no place for me to be grieving for him. That should not, that is a, that would be pagan sorrow because they don't know the truth. They don't have divine revelation of God. So they have doubts. They have, they're not sure of anything. They don't know. Will they ever see them again? They don't know. Where will they go? They don't really know. They might pretend to know, but in their heart, they don't know because they do not have the written revelation of God. They're not relying on it in any way. And they don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them that brings them deep conviction concerning these matters. So you, Christian, if you're rightly informed, you should have no sorrow over a beloved brother or sister in Christ, no sorrow on their part for them because they have died. Now, I'm going to connect it back to the rapture. You've got to hold on because it is connected to that. But you should have no sorrow, just generally speaking. Does that make sense? Listen, they're not in a better place. They're in the best place, all right? I'm going to come back to that. I can do it, I can do it. (laughs) Sorrow due to loss sustained by the living is not dealt with in this passage. That's the point, I'm trying to emphasize that. So Paul is not saying, hey, you can't be sad. You can't be sad if your Christian brother or sister in Christ die. I would be sad. Because I would miss Tony. I'd miss him, you know? 
but I would have no place to be sad for him or sorrow for him individually. He's good. He's going to be good. But just don't think, now for a moment, just hesitate for a second. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't think he's going to be good just because he'll be with the Lord. That is true, but we're going to connect it back to the rapture and the thinking of this young church and their focus and their, what they were consumed with, which I'll try to apply at the end. All right, so then he says, he gives instructions now. Now, this is how we know that this sorrow that he's referring to, I don't want you to be uninformed so that you will not sorrow like those who have no hope for those who have died in Christ. Now we see in verse 14, he's going to give instruction that is intended to alleviate that sorrow. So they're connected. So it's not just, I have sorrow because I'm not sure, the Thessalonians, because I'm not sure what's happening to those who have died. It's not that. It's that they think something that's not right concerning the coming of Christ for his own. And that concerns them for those who have died, but they need not be concerned or sorrow for them. That's the point. All right, so let's read on. Hopefully it'll come together. Verse 14, here is his instruction attended, intended to alleviate any sorrow in the Thessalonians on behalf of the dead in Christ. Here it is. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Okay, just, you remember that passage I read you in John 14? We read it earlier. He's gonna come again, and he's going to, when he comes, he's gonna appear, and what's he gonna do? He's going to receive his own to himself, right? Now, when you think about that, receive his own to himself, he was speaking to people that were alive, right? And so it just says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come, and I'll see you, and I'm going to receive you. You'll be caught up. You'll be raptured away. I'm going to receive you to myself that I can now take you back to this place that I have prepared for you, that you would be with me. Huh? Okay? But what if they're not there? What if they're dead? Just keep that in mind. Okay. Also, the original word order here for this passage, I know this is technical stuff, but just hang on. The original word order is those who have fallen asleep through Jesus, God will bring with him. That's the original word order. So the through Jesus is in the middle of the original word order. So the ESV has chosen to put it with God will bring with him. It could go either way. In other words, through Jesus, God will bring with him these folks, or it could also go with those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. It could go either way. So the ESV translates it this way, that it's even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, but it could also go with the fallen asleep. So let me show you that, and I believe that is the right way to understand it. In three other uh, translations, real quick, the... Uh, Yep, there it is. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. Fallen asleep through Jesus. 
Another translation in the NSB Bible, which is slightly different. Instead of through, it translates it in. The idea is through him, in him. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Okay, what do you th- okay and then one more. And this actually tries to give, it interprets the passage so it makes sure you don't miss it. For the NET, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so also we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep as Christians. As Christians. You see that? Now remember, this instruction is intended to alleviate any sorrow they might have had on behalf of those who died in Christ. It is to inform them so that they would no longer be uninformed or misunderstand in time events. Now Paul goes on to explain this matter further. What does he mean that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus? And Paul goes on to provide a more detailed analysis. And we're not, I'm just going to read it to you on purpose. I'm not gonna, we're not going to look at every detail. You don't need to, honestly. We could come back and look at it. If you're studying the rapture more closely, we could look at it. But to get the point here, you just need to see the detailed analysis so that you don't miss the context of verse 13. All right? So here it is. Now I'm going to provide you a more detailed analysis of what I just said. But remember, verse 14 is what? The instruction to alleviate any sorrow they may have had concerning the dead in Christ. And we see this sorrow is related to something about the Lord bringing with him those who have fallen asleep, right? So if you're still confused... Then we read verse 15 and 16 and 17. Here we go. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, he said he would come. He said he would return. He said he would appear. He said in John 14, he would take us unto himself. Yeah? Who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. One note. There is a double negative here in the Greek, and the ESV doesn't translate it, but it, 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 the NET does. So it's, will surely not precede those who have fallen asleep. It's like a no and no kind of idea. Uh, the, in, the New King James says, will by no means. You need to know this. So that... That gives us a clue to what's going on in the heads of the Thessalonians, the Christian Thessalonians. They will not precede those those who have fallen asleep, will, or we will not precede those who have fallen asleep when he comes, okay? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, those who have fallen asleep, Believers that they knew will rise what? First. Then we, Paul includes himself, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, raptured, together with them. Who's the them? The dead in Christ. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
and so we will always be with the Lord. And just in case you missed it, verse 14, when he says, uh, again, in the ESV, but I'll just read it in the NASB. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Just to understand, the direction is to heaven. He Listen, when he comes again, and because he died and rose again, so he died and, all who are, and he rose again, so all who are in Christ, even if they die, will raise again, and they will with him, God will bring with him to himself in that place that he has prepared to them, for them, those who have fallen asleep. Let me explain. And then he explains through 15 through 17. And you can rest assured they won't miss it. We certainly won't precede them. Death cannot stop what has been promised to them. Okay? So one translation puts it this way, we who are still alive, the Lord's coming, will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. So just as, one writer says, just as Jesus died and rose again, so will those who sleep in him be raised when God brings them to heaven with Jesus at his appearing, at what we typically refer to as the rapture. And it is the fact of Jesus' death and resurrection that guarantees as its sequel the eventual resurrection of the dead in Christ. So you have two classes of believers at the Lord's appearing at his return. Those that are still alive and those that have died. They both will share the same destiny. They both will be resurrected and brought with the Lord to heaven just as he promised to share in the glories and the rewards and the joys that await them. They won't miss anything. The former group will not precede the latter. That is what is supposed to alleviate the apprehension they have about the dead. So let me try to help you, because we don't have everything here. We're just having what Paul's addressing without every single detail, but we can draw conclusions from what he's addressing. One writer says, Clearly, some of the Thessalonian believers had died since the missionaries left. So it may not have been many. One, two, I don't know. Some died, okay, which is causing this. So they come to Christ. Paul informs them, and he's coming for you. He's coming. He could come at any time, and he's coming to receive you. This is what his promise was. He's coming to receive you to himself, okay? He's not coming somewhere down the road after the tribulation period because then why are they looking for him like they are? They, you know, why look? You know, the tribulation hasn't even started yet. No, they're looking, they're longing, they're waiting. So he's coming for us, he's coming for us, and then Bob dies. Bob dies. So they're confused because what about Bob? I mean, verse 15 indicates that they feared that those who failed to live until the coming of Christ would be at an irreparable disadvantage at his return in some way. They fancied that those who had departed would miss the blissful reunion or at least come behind those who had lived until the appearing. Like maybe they, they would miss something. They wouldn't miss the glory of this day and, and maybe even the reward and the dwellings that Jesus had promised to them, that he would come and get them. They were misinformed or 
misunderstood what they had learned or just this was a matter that Paul maybe didn't address specifically. You know, he's, just think about it. He's there. The Lord has saved you. Live for him. He's coming again. Keep looking to him as you live for him. Maybe he forgot to mention, oh, by the way, if one of you dies, it's okay because they'll be with you when he comes back. Don't worry. You won't precede them. The Lord will resurrect them unto himself. You'll meet together. You'll be with them again. Death will do nothing to disadvantage them. So live for the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to worry. When he comes, all of you will be gathered together. He'll bring you to himself and take you to his Father in heaven. Maybe they missed that, or maybe Paul didn't include that. I don't know. But either way, then they had sorrow over those who had fallen asleep in Christ. And Paul says, I don't want you having any of that. You need not have any of that. That's the point. One writer said, Timothy had reported that they feared Again, this is assumed. Timothy had reported that they feared that those of their brethren who had fallen asleep before the expected return of the Lord would not participate in his blessings and glories. Right? Because again, they're thinking he's coming for us, but the idea is he's coming for those that are on the earth. But these guys are dead. They're in the ground. Their misgivings did not relate so much to the resurrection generally as to the share which the departed were to have in the coming itself. Would they, would they miss this? Would they miss the rapture altogether? This glorious event that they're longing for and looking for, the return of their king for them, the rapture, for the church, would they miss it? They're dead, right? And again, I think, you, I think we get so, we get a little confused because we just think of the soul. You know, well, isn't their soul with the Lord? Yes. But the glories and blessings that await us, await us in resurrected bodies, glorified bodies. Paul even makes reference to not having a body as, as being similar to being naked. There's, there's something missing. We were not meant to be disembodied spirits. We were meant to be soul and body. The body's dead. Don't worry, they won't miss a thing. When I come they'll be resurrected first. They'll be here with me. You will follow, probably in a moment. You probably won't even know. There probably will be no time difference. You'll all be gathered together, resurrected, glorified. In the case of the alive, they'll just be glorified bodies, never having died. Don't worry. See, I conquered death, so death can do no damage to those who are in me. Everything I've promised them, all the hope, all the glory, all the honor will be theirs. Dying will not put them at a disadvantage in any way. Do not have any sorrow for them. That's what Paul's saying. I believe. Yeah, I think so. One writer says, you know, maybe the question was, would they be... Would they be second-class citizens in heaven? They're just There was confusion because they were not certain and they didn't know how to even process this reality exactly. And now Paul is informing them. Now, for us who believe in these things already, we know, right? But just try to remember, young church, they didn't, they were misinformed. I don't want you to be uninformed. You need not grieve like those who have no hope. But now you see the full context of it. 
You know, it's not just grieving because they died. It's grieving because, listen, they're consumed by the return of the Lord in a good way. They are fixed. And then you watch one drop off the radar. He's not, you know, he's not going to be with us. He's going to miss it. It's that. Wrong thinking. He won't miss anything. He'll be there, body and soul, resurrected, glorified. He'll be there with you. This is a temporary separation on your part. He'll be there with you. And remember, they believed rightly that it could happen at any time. Paul includes himself in the we who are alive. Now, Paul died, and the rapture did not occur, right? Because here's the deal. We don't know when it's going to occur. The Lord never gave a date. He never promised a particular on this day when the planets are aligned. None of that nonsense. He said only, I'm coming. I'm coming to get you. I'll be back. I'm coming to get you. I'm going to receive you to myself. And it could happen at any time, at any time, on any day. And so Paul lived with that awareness and instructed others in that. It may not happen in my lifetime, but it could. It could happen now. It could happen tomorrow. And so they're fixed. That's what you see here. That's why they're grieving. They're not just grieving because somebody died. They're not grieving because they're sad because they lost their friend. See, that's what's missed when you don't include the context. Why it's so important, why we say that over and over again. Read things in their context. Now, one writer adds this, I'm almost done. The main cause for restlessness among the Thessalonian believers, so okay, and then at 4.18, the last passage, he just says, therefore encourage one another with these words, right? The words I just gave you about these matters, encourage each other. Well, so they were to take these words and say, hey, brother, we we were misinformed or not misinformed, we misunderstood or now we know the facts as they really are concerning these matters, concerning the dead in Christ and concerning the return of our Lord that we are waiting for. We understand these things. Be encouraged, brother. Why would that be an encouragement to them? They're still alive, right? It'd be encouragement to them because as they see one drop off, maybe they're thinking, wait a minute, if I drop off, I mean, how long is this thing gonna take? When's he coming back? I don't know, it could be any time, but I'm getting older too. I don't know, what if I die? So they're thinking, then I might miss it or I might not experience the glories and joys that I'm hoping for all the rewards that are promised to those when he comes back for them. You see? So he says, they had thought that only those who were alive at the time of the appearing would witness and share in its glories. As long as they held this view, they would feel impatient at any prospect of postponement in his return since it cast a shadow upon their own hope of personal survival to share in that glory. You can see that. Listen, encourage each other with these words. You're good. Whether you live or whether you die, it won't matter concerning these things. When he comes, he'll gather you all, body, soul, glorified, resurrected, to be with him and dwell in the place that he has promised to you. And don't forget, receive the rewards that he has promised to the the church during this period of time. You won't miss any of it. Now, following the rapture will be the tribulation. Okay, And people disagree on this. I get it. But here's what I want to show you. There, there is no way 
really, no good way to understand 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 18 unless you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. There's just no way to do it. Based on, the, based on everything I just showed you, if you don't believe that he could come, and when we say a pre-tribulational rapture, it means this. It means that the Lord will come again and that there's nothing that has to, for his people, for the church, for all who are in Christ, and there's nothing that has to take place on the prophetic calendar prior to that event. I'm not waiting for something else to occur before he comes for me and for all who are in Christ. I don't have to wait. If I have to wait, then I'm thinking, oh, yeah, what Paul's talking about here is after the tribulation, after all the destruction, then the Lord will come back and establish, judge the nations and set up his kingdom. And at that time, there'll be some rapture thing. I guess we'll go up, we'll meet the Lord in the air, but instead of going to heaven, we'll come back down real quick and then we'll be on the earth. Because you can't deny that there is a catching up or a rapture. There clearly is one. The problem people have, Christians among themselves, is when does this occur? If it occurs after the tribulation, then there is no imminence. There is no, it could happen at any time. I know that at least the tribulation has to begin. The abomination of desolation has to take place. The nations have to rise up against the nation of Israel. All that has to occur before the Lord will come again for his people. There's no eminence. No anticipation, really. No at any moment. But that doesn't make sense. If you study 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, it doesn't fit. Let me read this to you. This is someone who defends the pre-tribulational rapture, Richard Mayhew. I have the article, the entire article, if you would like to, me to send it to you. Be happy to do that. Just uh, put on the connection card, send me the pre-trib rapture article. Let me read this section of it. Regarding 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, he says this, For discussion's sake, suppose hypothetically that some other rapture timing besides pre-tribulational is true. What would one expect to find in 1 Thessalonians 4? And how does this compare with what is actually observed, what I just instructed you in? First, one would expect the Thessalonians to be joyous over the fact that loved ones are home with the Lord and will not have to endure the horrors of the tribulation. But the Thessalonians are actually grieving because they fear their loved ones have missed the rapture. Only a pre-tribulational rapture accounts for this grief. Second, one would expect the Thessalonians to be grieving over their own impending trial rather than grieving over loved ones. Furthermore, they would be inquisitive about their own future doom, the tribulation. But the Thessalonians have no fears or questions about the coming tribulation. Why not? Because they're not going to be part of it. Third, remember Paul instructed them in end times events, clearly. Third, one would expect Paul, even in the absence of interest or questions by the Thessalonians, to have provided instructions and exhortation for such a supreme test, the tribulation, which would make their present tribulation seem microscopic in comparison, the persecutions they were receiving by those who lived among them. But not one indication of any impending tribulation of this kind appears in the text. 1 Thessalonians 4 fits only the model of a pre-tribulational rapture. It is 
incompatible with any other time for the rapture. So who cares? I do. I care greatly. I care greatly. I think these things matter. Christians of good faith disagree on the timing of the tribulation, but our position is and will remain that it happens prior to the tribulation and it could happen at any time, and I think this is significant. It shows you that that's, I believe, that is what they were taught. They were looking for it. They were longing for it. They got confused because some died waiting for it, right? But that was their focus and their emphasis. Now, you also know that the church in Thessalonica, even though it'd be a young church, was commended by Paul. They were on fire, if you will. We use that word so loosely. For the Lord, they were making him known. They were proclaiming him, even in the face of persecution. They were, if you will, fixed on Christ. And I think this had very much to do with it. If I wake up every morning and I think to myself, this might be the day my Lord comes for me. This might be the day. Not, you know, who knows? If someday, you know, the tribulation starts to take place and that'll happen, who knows, you know? This might be the day. That reorients my mind because that day will be the day he comes for me. I will see him. He will take me. He will then give out the rewards for my faithful service unto him. So now my whole orientation of my mind is different. I'm not just thinking, ah, traffic or, oh, life. This might be the day. And I'm thinking of Christ. I'm thinking about eternal things. I'm thinking about rewards that matter. I'm thinking about investing in the eternal because the eternal one is coming to get me. It may be today. I think it changes positively the Christian's direction, the Christian's focus. Even I would say not only that, just endurance. Yeah, today was rough, but maybe today will be the day. Today will be the day he'll come and get me. Okay, it wasn't today. I wake up again, then maybe it is today. And I'm looking, and in looking, I'm living for him. I think it makes a huge difference, beloved. I think it's very important to have this position. And, with, and so the problem is for us, 2,000 years removed, right? So we look back over 2,000 years and go, well, yeah, Jeremy, okay. A lot of Christians may have been saying that, but it's been 2,000 years, man. Uh-huh. So? So? What? I mean, what's that have to do with anything? Like, that, mat- that matters. He could come at any time. So the idea was every generation of faithful believers would be longing and looking for the return of their Lord, and in light of that, living faithfully for and unto him. Every generation. Until... He comes, not waiting for some other events to take place. Oh, I don't know. I don't see things happening in the Middle East like I think they should, so maybe it's not going to. It could happen at any moment. Could it happen? Paul believed it. The Thessalonian Christians believed it. They believed it. They were so messed up over it that they thought, oh, my goodness, and they're going to miss it. It wouldn't make any sense if they didn't believe these very things, the pre-tribulation or rapture. And I think that had an incredible impact on their life for the Lord. And finally, 
It's, you know, death is no disadvantage to, or at all, to the believer. Yes, death is no disadvantage at all to the believer. Death is a tremendous disadvantage to the unbeliever. Right? If you are not in Christ, death is it for you. Not in the sense of you stop ceasing to exist, but your hope or any chance of hope, any chance of being with God in glory, any chance of reward, any eternal life with Him, it's over. It's over. Beloved, Christ could come at any time. And if you're an unbeliever, you could die at any time. So I appeal to you. Turn to him, this one who's coming for his own. Confess your sin and rebellion against him that separates you from God and cry out to him to be your savior. Turn to him right now. Death will be an incredible disadvantage to you if you are not in Christ. You won't be able to overcome it. You won't be able to come back from it. You will forever be separated from the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ forever. And there's no doubt in my mind and my heart that there's folks in here who are not in Christ. (laughs) So I want to pray for you right now. Father in heaven, I pray that you would do your work in their hearts. Maybe they come every Sunday and they sit here, but they have no relationship with you through your son, the Savior, They have not given themselves to him. They have not called out upon him to save them from their sins and their guilt before you. They are not trusting in him and his salvation wrought on that cross to make them right with you, God. They continue to associate with this fellowship. They come, and we are glad they come. But, Father, we pray, most importantly, that they would not just come here, but come to Christ. Father, you do the work, we pray, that we know only you can do through your Spirit, convicting them even now in their hearts, making it clear to them in a way that is so powerful that they stand condemned even now before you. Help them to see the full weight of that. Help them to realize that if they died in that state, it's over. There's no coming back from that, forever separated from you. And paying the penalty themselves for their sin. Father, may they feel that. May they know that with full conviction. And knowing that, may they flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. Believing that there and only there can they find rescue from their dire situation. May they call upon the name of the Lord in faith, in repentance, and be saved, even now, in their heart, in their minds, 
Father, we pray that. We ask, we plead. You do that work among those here who are not in Christ. We pray you might bring them into your fold, Father, so that they too will be with us when our Lord returns. We pray all this in his name. Amen.